The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Eric. Well, um, so one of the things about preaching through the book of Galatians, as slowly as we are, I was just talking with Bruce Williams about this uh, before the service, um, is that we're going slow enough that there's just a ton of overlap in points that are being made from one passage to the next. And yet, that's part of the strength and the beauty of a book like Galatians, is Galatians is driving hard to make pretty much a single point and, and to make it over and over and over again as strong, from every angle possible, and the point being that salvation is a work that comes by grace through faith in Christ alone and no place else. Jesus plus nothing. And so it's kind of a luxury, I feel, as a pastor that we're spending the weeks that we're spending basically saying that over and over and over again because I need to hear it over and over again. I'm, I'm a person who will continually add things to the gospel. And so some of the, the things I want to talk about this morning and some of the applications and connections I want to make, I want to ask you to do something. And that is I want to ask you to, um, to really kind of examine your own heart uh, in ways that you add to uh, the gospel. Because a lot of ways that we add to the gospel are in order to favor ourselves and to feel better about ourselves as we compare ourselves to other people. Um, So I want to ask you to do that. So let me me get into this. Um, In 1955, there was a young woman named Rosa Parks who got onto a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama, and she sat on the fifth row of the bus. And I learned something. I'm just going to be honest with you. I learned something about the Rosa Parks story in preparing for this sermon that I did not know. What I thought happened was that Rosa Parks got onto the bus and sat down in the white section. And when the bus driver said move, she didn't. Is that what you thought? That's not what happened. What happened was the fifth row was the beginning of the colored section. That's what it was called on the bus. And Rosa Parks, an African-American, she sat on the fifth row. Well, then the bus filled up. And so white people were getting on the bus and had no place to sit. And so the bus driver went to the first row of the colored section and asked them to get up and yield their seats to the white passengers and for them to move to the back of the bus. Three of them did, she did not. 
the driver, here's a, here's a transcript of, of what was said. The driver said, are you going to stand up? And Rosa Parks said, no. And the driver said, well, I'm going to have you arrested. And Rosa Parks said, you may do that. That moment, a woman in a seat on a bus being asked, are you going to stand up? It's just hard to overstate the ripple effect of that, of one word. Are you going to stand up? No. Things that came out of that involve a little-known-at-the-time minister named Martin Luther King Jr. who helped put together the boycott of Montgomery buses. What was she doing? What was, she, what was that no about? That no was about a lot of things. It's about a lot of things that are still in play today. But at the heart of the no was this. What kind of America is this going to be? Specifically, is this going to be one nation or is it going to be two? Is it going to be one where there are people of privilege who are entitled to the seats of others or is it going to be a nation where there is no dividing line? And that's why she stayed in her seat. This passage that we just read here in Galatians is very similar to the Rosa Parks story. I think about it when I, when I see what's happening here, and we'll unpack it and see it, but, but it, it, involves, uh, it involves a moment, a moment where a question is asked, and the answer to that question so much hinges on it, so much. I think one of the comedies of this passage is this passage involves one of the earliest examples of a committee. <laughs> a committee was formed to deal with a question. And on its face, what Paul is doing in this text is he's walking us through a series of events that transpired. He's still kind of in his autobiography part of Galatians here. He's talking about something that happened about 14 years into his life and ministry as a follower of Christ. But the reason behind this information, it offers us this intriguing peek into the formation of the early church. What's on the line here in this passage? Specifically, is whether the church will be one church or two. Will it be one or will it be two? Will the church really exist with the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17? If it's been a while since you've read John 17, read it. You don't have to do that right now, but you can read it later, today. Will the church be one or will it be two? Is the divide in the church insurmountable or not? And so let's tease it out. What happens here in this passage is Paul and Barnabas and Titus travel to Jerusalem to meet with influential leaders. And who he's talking about here probably is is Peter, James, and John. He's meeting with the, the influencers of the Christian church, the apostles, and the mentors, the original 12 who are still there. And remember that this was before the days of telephones and email and things like this. So convening a council like this was really an impressive feat 
to begin with. Just the fact that it even happened. A lot had to happen. So Paul and Titus and Barnabas, they travel. They travel a couple hundred miles from where they are to Jerusalem to have a conversation. And it's a conversation with the disciples about specifically the necessity of circumcision. That's the issue at hand. The adherence to Jewish tradition for Gentile converts. And what that tells us, all that went into this council, to this convening of a committee meeting, tells us this was a really important issue. This was not a small thing. It was important to all of them. It was weighty. Getting this right was vital to the survival and the unity of the church moving forward. It's real easy, I think, to kind of take a cartoonish look at characters in Scripture that you have the good guys and you have the bad guys, and the bad guys are kind of, you know, with the Cruella DeVille cigarette in their hand, kind of twisting their mustaches, sneering down at the, at the good, the innocent people. I think we, 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 need to, we need to have some empathy, I think, for those who believed that circumcision was probably necessary for a Christian convert. And let me explain why before you get mad at me. You have to understand that this would have been an enormous paradigm shift for somebody to say, I'm a follower of the God of Abraham, but I don't have to be circumcised. It was a huge paradigm shift that God would save Gentiles without requiring that. Because think about it. For thousands of years, circumcision had been, for the Jewish people, the sign of who belonged to God. It identified those who were in. It identified those who were out. And so it's really hard, I think, to fault Jewish believers for struggling here with this question. I think it's an honest question. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It was given to Abraham. It was there from the beginning. It was holy. It was a serious rite that was given to all males, which represented the lineage. They all came from this. But what happened is, and we do this still today, is over time, circumcision went from being merely a sign to being the primary proof of belonging to God's people. So it had taken on a more elevated significance. And so the question then that everybody's trying to figure out is if in Christ God makes no distinction between circumcision and uncircumcision, if God makes no distinction, should they? The fact that the Lord had already saved and worked through several Gentiles, one of whom, Titus, was right there in their midst, was evident. Did Titus, who was already involved in building the church, who was a leader among the people, who was in the inner ring with Paul, did he really need then to be circumcised? And if so, for what? And we know from the rest of this letter and from Acts 11 and Acts 15 that the council concluded based on the teaching, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that it would be wrong to add circumcision to what God had already done in Christ. Imagine the relief. And in this process, we gain an important lesson in living by grace. And that is this, that we have this enormous responsibility to hold forth the gospel as it is which is insisting on salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ. 
Because when we add to the gospel, here's what we're often doing. And this is where I want us to look at our own, own lives and hearts. When we add to the gospel, often what we're doing is we're kind of chasing the arrogant idea that we're doing Christianity better than others and that the measure of genuine faith is to see how close someone else's walk with the Lord is to ours. Consider what's at stake here. The primary threat of these false teachers insisting on circumcision would be what? It would be the perpetual disunity within the church moving forward. Instead of being one, the church would have two parts. It would have two halves. It would have the Jewish half and it would have the Gentile half and never the twain should meet. And the Jewish part would be seen as the pure part because of their adherence to tradition. And the Gentiles, in order to belong, would have to follow tradition, like circumcision. But even still, in the act of following the Jewish tradition, they would then be known as outsiders who naturalized in, and those who, for those on the other side, condescended to receive. And this places a hierarchy, doesn't it, within the church that has nothing to do with the work of Christ, but rather rests solely on the traditions of man. And so I want to ask the question, where do you do that in your life? Where do you prize a tradition or a way of being or moving that causes you to feel superior in yourself and to look down on other people. Because we still live with this tension in so many corners of our communities, right? There are those who are like us in gender, in political affiliation, in education, in ethnicity, in economic race, in social station. And many people will prefer those who are like us over those who are different from us. And even if we're not exclusive about only being with others who are like us, we might expect or even demand that those who are different from us make an effort to conform to our way of life, right? We see this. We see this when someone criticizes an immigrant for not speaking English. Learn English. This is America, which is about the dumbest thing you can say about America, right? You see this when somebody is mocked for having a name that is hard to pronounce, or when somebody from another culture dresses differently, or the music that they like, or the food that they eat. You see it when, and mm, this one, you see it when the majority group welcomes the minority group, but does it in a condescending way that implies that the minority group should be grateful for the generosity in granting a seat at the majority group's table. That makes sense? I'm going to say that again. 
We see this when a majority group welcomes a minority but does so in a condescending way that implies the minority group should be grateful for their generosity in granting a seat at their table. That's what's happening here. That's really at the heart of what Paul and Titus and Barnabas and the apostles are working through. And the point is this practice of the dividing the world into two halves, those who are like us and those who are different from us, and then assigning a higher value to the group to which we belong is still alive and it's still strong. It just happens. It's still happening. And so we do well as believers who are reading the book of Galatians to honestly search our own hearts and to see where we're guilty of this and then to repent. Why? Because as Paul notes here, living this way, where we're putting the yoke of tradition or insisting on sameness is, is, a, is a kind of slavery that causes nothing but division. When we add to the requirements of the gospel, what we do is we cut ourselves off from the freedom of the gospel that it gives us. So it's serious. It's serious stuff. In this passage here and in Acts 15, uh, there's a passage actually in Acts 15 in which Paul and some others go to Jerusalem. It's, the, it's about the Jerusalem Council, if you've heard of that. Um, it's part of the story of the early church. Uh, today's passage from Galatians, I, I don't think it's probably referring to that council. I think it's referring to, to another one. Um, but that Jerusalem council, the subject matter is the same, a circumcision required for Gentile converts. And at that council, the apostle Peter makes a statement that's just loaded uh, in, a beautiful, in a beautiful way. Speaking of loaded statements, this is apropos of nothing, but I, I saw a, a letter somebody had written in response to a... Uh, somebody had written a letter of critique, and the person responding to the letter of re- critique, the opening sentence was, I thank you for the first half of your letter. <laughs> Which is just a, a serious burn, right? Um, I don't thank you for the second half of your letter, but I do thank you for the first half of your <laughs> Anyway, sorry. So here's what Peter says when he addresses the crowd. He says... We believe that we Jews, so remember Peter was Jewish, we believe that we Jews will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, the Gentiles, will. We believe that we, the Jews, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as the Gentiles will. James Boyce notes that it's interesting that Peter didn't put it the other way around. What Peter didn't say was he didn't say that the Gentiles would be saved just as the Jews were. Instead, he says that the Jews would be saved just as the Gentiles were by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And it's, a, it's an incredible twist because what began as an argument that Gentiles had to become like Jews with all of their traditions and customs in order to be saved was settled with the conclusion that, in fact, the opposite was true, that Jews would be saved as the Gentiles were by grace through faith in Christ alone plus nothing. Appreciate that with these councils that we read about in Galatians and in Acts, appreciate that heavy lifting is being done for you. 
right? These councils are convening to articulate answers that we are on the receiving end of the benefits of. So, so appreciate, hear and receive the heavy lifting that's being done for you and me. The apostles are insisting that we know that we do not have to earn our salvation on our own. We don't. And you never have to preserve your salvation on your own. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone plus nothing. If you're a Christian, you are saved from your sin for one reason only, and that is that the grace of God has covered you. And so I pray that this would, would lift our burdens and liberate us to know the joy and the gladness of being set free to live as a follower of Christ, saved by grace plus nothing. The false teachers here, they wanted to bring the church under a yoke of slavery. But the true gospel sets us completely free from that. As Tim Keller put it, he said, the stakes here are unity, the verdict is welcome, which makes the outcome freedom. The stakes are unity, the verdict is welcome, which makes the outcome freedom. How does the gospel give us freedom? I'm going to borrow from Tim Keller liberally here. Uh, This is from his commentary on Galatians, which is so good. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor and was a pastor in New York City, Redeemer, Presbyterian Church. And uh, he he talks about uh, the gospel gives us freedom. He talks about specifically it gives us cultural freedom and it gives us emotional freedom. Freedom, And I want to conclude by just unpacking those two. Um, cultural freedom. The gospel gives us cultural freedom, which means moralistic rules-based religion is filled with tests of authenticity that have nothing to do with grace and yet everything to do with subscription to a set of rules. So growing up, I was convinced, I was certain that when I saw someone smoking a cigarette... I was looking at a non-Christian. I mean, I was just certain of the fact because I I grew up with that, that a, a true Christian would never do that sort of thing. And I've known people, and at times I I have been someone who struggles to make sure that we're doing everything the right way as though adhering to strict regulations will ensure certain positive outcomes as though my, through my behavior I can force God's hand. And you ever feel that way? It sneaks up on me. Like I think I'm fine. I think I don't think that way until something happens where I really want God to do something a particular way or I want him for everything decent and holy to stop doing something the way that he's doing it. And I think, what do I need to do to get God to comply? And then we're just standing in strange theological waters, aren't we? The approach, when you're trying to force God's hand, it makes it really difficult to keep the two great commands that Jesus said, summarize the entire law of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because when, in spite of our best efforts, God does the opposite of how we would have drawn things up, we feel let down and angry toward him. I don't love you with my heart and soul right now. I'm kind of frustrated. I'm disappointed in you, God. And when our neighbors don't follow our same rules, we judge them, which makes it impossible to love them well. 
when you light up a cigarette and I conclude that you are a non-Christian, I put you in a category that is other than the people that I'm drawn to and love. I've since moved away from that, but I have to be honest, there's still a part of me that, that gets real judgy real quick with not only that, but a lot of things. The gospel frees us from having to count on anything other than the grace and kindness of God. And so we can look at the spiritual poverty that we all carry under the surface of our veneers and know this does not disqualify me from the love of God. There's cultural freedom. There's emotional freedom too. Keller writes this, anyone who believes that our relationship with God is based on keeping up moral behavior is on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. Though God did not free Gentiles from the moral law as a way to live, Christians are free from it as a system of salvation. We obey not in the fear and insecurity of hoping to earn our salvation, but in the freedom and security of knowing we are already saved in Christ. We obey in the freedom of gratitude. So that's what the gospel gives us. It gives us true cultural and emotional freedom. The gospel frees us from those things. The false gospel binds us to them. So, by way of application, let's pull the, the, the pull to add cultural rules to the gospel or the temptation to regard our moral behavior as the basis of God's approval. It's going to destroy us from the inside out. It's going to make us miserable Christians. And so I pray that we would examine our own lives for the places where we do, do this, where we sit in judgment of others and for where we take pride in or berate ourselves over our own moral traditional cultural conduct. We talk about worship, connect, serve here, that we're a church that wants to be made of people who are worshiping the Lord, who are connecting to one another and are serving our church and our city and our world. This applies so much to that. As a church seeking to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life, by being people who worship, connect, and serve, it's crucial that we remember where our security rests before him. Otherwise, our worship is going to be emptied of affection and, and instead will become a tactic in order to get God to perform. Our connections with others will be guarded and shallow lest we reveal our weakness to one another and be judged as inferior or as superior, both of which are toxic to your heart and mine. And our service will not be done out of love for, people, for the people we're serving, but out of a compulsion to look good in the eyes of those who are watching over us. I remember a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. <laughs> when we're walking in the freedom of the gospel, our worship, both corporately and individually, will be an expression of adoration and affection for the God who loves us and gave himself for us. Our connections with others will take on a quality where we long to know each other, and to be truly known, leaning on each other in seasons of struggle and celebrating with each other in times of joy. And our service toward the church and others will flow from a longing to proclaim the freedom that is ours in Christ. And so we, may we live in that freedom, and may we love it. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active, that you are 
powerfully working through it. Thank you for books like Galatians, which are strong in their appeal, in their insistence that we live as people who believe that the gospel is true and that we are set free by grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing, nothing else. Lord, it will take us our entire lives to hone and perfect the skill of living that way. We need your spirit to enable us. We need your spirit to give us the confidence to believe that such a glorious truth is really true. Um, We need your spirit to show us the places where we're duplicitous, where we're seeing ourselves as better than others in little ways and big ways. Help us to grow. Uh, Help us to trust you. Help us to fight for freedom uh, for our own and for the freedom of others in Christ. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.